0: never remember. I go through
1: every week and I'm like, which week, which hand is the microphone going? It always feels weird. I'm like, okay, I'm a left-handed mic person. I just need to remember that. <coughs> How are you guys doing? You guys ready for Christmas? Yeah, yeah me neither. No, but we're going to start early. We're starting early with a Christmas message. We are going to do an Advent-style build-up to Christmas this year. And the first message that we're going to talk about in our Joy to the World series is called... Love realized. Now when you realize something, we we have different ways of saying realized, right? Like, oh, I just realized something means I just remembered or something just became clear. Or we can talk about realizing your goals and realizing your dreams, right? Like when somebody realizes their goal, that's when they achieve it, right? When someone realizes something, that's when they actually have it. They actually get it. It's right here. Now I know. Now I understand. Now I have it. Now I've done it. It's right there. It's real, So we're going to talk about how in this Christmas season, Jesus coming as a baby, which is what we celebrate every year on December 25th, is actually a picture of ultimate love. Why is it that this actually probably laughably inaccurate painting of nativity, (laughs) that's cool, I actually picked it, actually this is from an article that said, What's wrong with this painting? And I was like, oh, it's interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that another (laughs) time. But it is great. It's art. It's, It's obviously portraying the fact that what's the center of this whole thing, right? It's Jesus. Christmas is all about Jesus. But tonight, I just want to focus on how Jesus coming perfectly pictures what ultimate love is. How is it love realized? And to do that, we are going to use the most known verse in the entire Bible... John 3.16, which I will read right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I realize now I didn't even bother to put the reference up there. (laughs) I mean, everybody knows John 3.16. People that have never been to church probably have a good chance of knowing John 3.16. It's just everywhere, right? But what does it really mean? What's the context that it's in? A lot of people don't know John 3.15 or John 3.17. And it turns out, context in this passage is super important. The context is like the picture frame that frames the picture. When you frame a picture, you pick something that's going to accentuate the picture, right? This is kind of the center of a picture, and Jesus has framed it very well in this conversation. We're going to talk about it because that's part of how we can see, wow, this is a big deal this is really what love looks like. This is what love looks like. The NIV study Bible makes a note and says, don't read this thinking that it means, boy golly, God just loved the world so much he gave us Jesus. That's true, but in the original language this has more of this connotation. For God loved the world in this way he gave his one and only son. This is what it looks like to love God gave his one and only son. So it's true that God loves us so much. But God so loved the world in this context means, I'll tell you what love looks like. God loved the world this way. He gave his one and only son. So we're supposed to say, oh wow, that's what love looks like. Not he loved the world. You see the distinction? He does love the world so much he gave. But this is what it looks like to love the world. And he gave us Jesus. But now let's dive in to this big meaty sandwich of a verse By asking two questions. Why was it necessary for Jesus to come? And what did he come to do? Because if we answer these questions, we can see what love really looks like. This is our representation. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. When you Google big meaty sandwich, this is what comes up. So. I think so. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. and if you look in the bottom left-hand corner, there's a real, like, normal sandwich. You see it in there for context? I don't know where this is, but who's hungry after service? Because I am ready. Anyway. Hey, man. There's food in the back. You can have tons of salsa. Alright. This represents John 3.16, right? There's a lot of meat in this verse, and we're going to dive into it. But what a lot of people skip, and what falls apart without, are the buns. So, The Buns are very important. I'm skipping that. What's interesting about John 3.16 and its important buns are that wrath and judgment are the buns of this sandwich. It has two wrath buns on either side of the verse. And if it wasn't a sub, it would be, I hesitate to even say it, but I'm going to because I'm a dad. I've got license. It could be a wrath. (laughs) wrath? No. Oh, like, yeah, it <laughs> it's recorded. All right. Merry Christmas. Are we really going to talk about wrath and judgment? Not really. That's the frame, not the picture, okay? And it's a very important frame because it makes the picture stand out. Let's jump in. John chapter three. What in the world is going on in the context of John chapter three? There's, who knows What two main people are talking in the chapter that the most famous verse in the Bible is in? Does anybody know? Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus and Nicodemus. High five, Justin DeMoyne. So, Jesus is probably hanging out with his disciples. It's nighttime. He probably wants the evening off. And this Pharisee named Nicodemus shows up. It says, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. So, I'm wondering. Like, the Pharisees and Jesus, if you know anything about the New Testament... They were buttonheads heads all the time. I mean, the Pharisees were the people that really had no problem arguing with Jesus. They were the people coming to him in public and saying, What are you telling people this for? That's not what we believe. We believe this and this and this. And Jesus said, Well, I'm telling you this. They're like, That's not good enough. For generations, we've believed this and this and this. And they're just button heads left and right. But Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus and says, Hey, man, here's the secret. A lot of us know that you come from God. A lot of us know that you're legit. Now, was Nicodemus a big chicken, and he had to sneak off to talk to Jesus at night because he knew that his Pharisee bros would be upset with him? Probably. It's likely. But let's give Nicodemus a little credit here. He actually is going to talk to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus cuts right to the chase. Like, he's talking to this Pharisee. This Pharisee's bothered him at night, probably at home, and says, hey, we know you're legit. And Jesus just says, look, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Does that phrase sound weird to you? If you haven't grown up in church, that probably sounds weird to you. Guess what? It sounded weird to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is totally lost. He's like, what are you talking about Be born again? Like, that's weird and maybe a little bit gross. Jesus, I'm not following. Like, how is that supposed to go? And then Jesus says, look, man, I mean a spiritual birth. And Jesus says, this shouldn't surprise you. But, you know, even after he explains, Nicodemus still doesn't get it, And because Nicodemus doesn't understand a second time, he gets an explanation with a side of rebuke. (laughs) So let's look at the rebuke. John 3, 10 to 15. Jesus says, You're Israel's teacher. And the Pharisees loved to teach people because they knew so much, right? And they just wanted to share with you people that didn't know so much. They really did like it. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, dude, I am doing the best I can. Seriously, I'm talking about what I've seen, and you just don't believe me. I'm giving you examples you'll understand. Like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to explain heavenly realities? Have you ever been there? No. I'm the only one that's been there, you know. I'm the son of man. I came from heaven. You wouldn't get the heavenly realities if I explained them to you. So I'm limited. I'm trying to explain with earthly realities these spiritual truths. And I, I imagine Jesus stepping back at that point, sighing deeply, and then giving an earthly example so that hopefully Nicodemus will get it. John three fifteen and fourteen and fifteen is this. Listen, Nicodemus. I think that's implied. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So apparently there's this story in the Old Testament that a Pharisee for sure would know about Moses lifting up a snake. What in the world does that mean? And Jesus is saying, you understand the context of that, right? And Nicodemus would have said, oh yeah, I do. And he said, just like that was necessary for Moses to do, I'm going to be lifted up in the same way. And then he tells them the goal. The goal is so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now it may not seem like this is heavy with wrath and judgment, but I am telling you this is the top bun. That's right. I like this analogy, Gemma. Let me have it. I found a big meaty sandwich. This is the top bun. This is part of the wrath frame, if you will. And let's look at it by looking at what he means by lifting up the snake in the desert. We're going to go to Numbers chapter 21. You guys want to go to the OT with me? Let's do it. Here we go. Yes, Old Testament. I love this church. (laughs) Numbers 21, 4 to 9. Here's the story. Let me give you some background on the story first. Back to the top bun. Here's the background. God is saving his people from a nasty, bad slavery situation. He has rescued them from Egypt. He used... All kinds of amazing signs and wonders and powers and displays of strength to forcibly take his people out of a bad situation and lead them to the promised land. His people have been nothing but trouble the whole time. And this is one of those situations. Numbers 21, 4-9. They, that's all of Israel, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Now, it's not really important, but God said, don't attack these people, you're related to them. That's just me. Go the long way around so that you don't have a conflict with the people in Edom. So they're doing that. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Whoa. (laughs) Dang. God rescued them from slavery. He's feeding them miraculously every day with manna from heaven. Okay? And they're frustrated. They've given him nothing but trouble since day one. Things aren't exactly so. Things aren't perfect. Things aren't the way they want it to be. Yes, we're fed, God, miraculously. And yes, we're miraculously getting water out of rocks, but... Gosh, can we have some bread, please? And can it be, like, just like a multigrain, maybe? Like, you know, with that, like, split down the middle, a nice, crunchy exterior? Hmm, that's what we want, Jesus. So they don't get it. They're filled with doubt. They're complaining. Nothing God is doing is good enough for them. And they're, they're demeaning his character. They're demeaning his grace. And they're demeaning his leader. They're doing everything wrong. So God acts justly. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. I told you, it's wrath and judgment. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. No kidding. Pray that the Lord, this is important. Somebody say what's next. Pray that the Lord. What's next? I love you. What's the next line? Take the snakes away from us. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Like, we sinned, please, please forgive us. We know God's character, he's going to forgive us. He sent these snakes among us, please take the snakes away. Yeah. So Moses goes and he prays to the people. Now, please take the snakes away from us. That does not figure in to why this is about love being realized, but it does figure into our application. So you might want to keep that in mind. They wanted the snakes taken away. So Moses prays to the people. The Lord says to Moses, make a snake. Put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. Great. Problem solved. That's amazing. But it's also interesting. Because here's what's going on, right? This is the picture of Jesus. This is the picture Jesus paints of his life and his mission. This picture, here's what's going on in this picture. Numbers 21, 49 paints a picture of God busy bringing about the salvation of his people. God is actively leading them. He is doing something. He is active. You are going towards your salvation. I'm working with you, and I'm working for you. He's in it. His people don't understand. His people rebel in sin. Continuously doubting, continuously second-guessing, and finally outright rebelling. God's anger is kindled, and he sends punishment, justly, I might add. God hears the cry of his people and makes a way for healing. healing. He makes a way for healing. That is super important because the snakes remain. The people said, take these snakes away. God says, no, in a sense, I'm not going to take the snakes away. I am going to take away the power of the snakes. Those snakes are going to stay around, but why are you afraid of snakes? Well, we're afraid of snakes because they bite us and they can kill us. He's like, you know what, that's a small goal, guys. Like, you didn't even ask me to get rid of all the snakes in the whole world. Like, you just asked me to get rid of the snakes in your camp. He's like, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not just going to get rid of all the snakes in the Sinai Peninsula, or this half of the world. I'm going to take away the power of all snakes. Here is a way out of snake bite forever. Don't worry about snakes. But I think it's important to look at this and I just want to think about it. The snakes didn't go anywhere. God does something else, something other and something better, much better that is put in its proper context generations later when Jesus says, this is what I'm doing. Just as Moses lifted up the snake so I have to be lifted up so that everyone can have eternal life doesn't that frame it better? He's using an analogy. One point in real time when people were dying from something and they looked at something that was lifted up to live. And Jesus is saying, guess what? Right now, people are dying from things. And I'm going to be lifted up so that people can look at me and believe and live. For God showed love this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Perish. Framed with this story from the Old Testament. When his people were perishing. But that's not what God wants. Right after John 3.16. We have the bottom bump. Okay. There's wrath and judgment. Immediately following the most famous verse, verse in the Bible. And immediately before. Check this out. John seventies seventeen is still good. Still cheerful. Still nice. Good news. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. That's good. Why did Jesus come? To save. to save the world. Is that good news? Yes. yes. When the angels come to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 and they say, you know, hey, rejoice. This is good news, right? It really is good news. <clears throat> Jesus came to save the world. But why did he need to come to save the world? Because whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. John 3:18. Not quoted as much as John 3.16. <laughs> and if you want to open your Bibles, check out John 3.36, just for fun. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. How can they be condemned already? Answer, because the verdict has been reached. The judge has already reached a, dissension, a, a decision. This word is, is the word for Judgment. The verdict has been reached. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is true throughout time, but just like Jesus used a snapshot in time, a real example from Numbers 21 back then, he's using a real example from what's happening right now. He's talking to a real guy. Remember, Nicodemus is right here. He's talking to a Pharisee. In John chapter 1, John the Apostle starts his book by saying this about Jesus, that he is the light. And the light came into the world, but people did not believe in him. They loved darkness more. When Jesus says light has come into the world, he's talking about himself. He's like, in this snapshot in time, you, Nicodemus, like the light is standing before you. And all of you people love darkness more than light. Do you understand that because of this, the verdict is in? Everyone who loves darkness more than light is going to be condemned. That's not good news. But it is, if this is framing the centerpiece, which is John 3.16, that because this is the situation, God is about to show love this way. God doesn't want this. So he's got to figure it out. So he gives his only son. So that whoever would believe in him would live and not die. Tell me if this looks familiar. Here's the snapshot of what's happening at the very moment Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. God is busy bringing about the salvation of his people. Right now, Jesus Christ is on earth talking to Nicodemus. The ultimate plan for salvation is in the works. His people don't understand. Any better than they did back in the day. And his people are still rebelling and sinning. Full of doubt, full of criticism. God's anger is kindled and the verdict is reached. But God has heard the cry of his people. And he's made a way for total salvation. What were his people crying out for? Back in Numbers 21, it was, hey God, we have a snake problem. Please get rid of the snakes. God doesn't. God does something better, but something other. In the first century, God's people were crying out, and the Pharisees might have been the loudest. God, we have a Roman problem. Maybe you haven't noticed we're enslaved again. Maybe you haven't noticed we have this oppressive government, and we're under their thumb, and they tax us, and they tell us what we can do and what we can't do, and we don't like it. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Christ figure. But in their minds, this was someone who was going to solve the Roman problem. God doesn't necessarily do that when he gets crucified. You see, it's weird. And now I'm talking about the crucifixion, and my first slide was the nativity. But this is important, because we only see Christmas properly when we realize it's aimed at Easter. And that is why it's about love realized. Because behind all of this, behind every story in the New Testament, every interaction with Jesus, forgiving sinners and pleading with people and having arguments about the law, looming behind all of it, he knows it, is the cross. The absolute horrible agony that he's about to go through that is nothing to laugh at. It is the worst crime ever. And he is willfully marching towards it. To accomplish a salvation that most of his people won't even understand because the Romans will remain. He doesn't get rid of the Romans, the Romans stay. He does something other, something unexpected, but something better. When Jesus dies on the cross, he doesn't just free one people from tyranny at a certain point in time. He opens up the door for all future generations who believe in him to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He opens up the door for an eternal, eternal, unshakable salvation. To be made right with God. Something that had never even been possible before. And more than that, he makes a way for the Holy Spirit to come inside us and enable us, finally, this is new too, enable us. Give us what we need to live the way God wants us to live. The cross bought a whole lot, but it cost a whole lot. And because the Romans remained, just like the snakes remained, a lot of people missed it. They didn't understand what it was even a solution to. And yet, Jesus knew this going in. When he's talking there, talking to Nicodemus, and he's not understanding Jesus is looking at one of the many people who he knew were just not going to get it. But this is what love looks like. Love doesn't want you to die. And he's willing to die for you no matter what your attitude is, no matter how many doubts you have, and whether you get it or not. But he's hoping you get it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life it is true that the verdict is in Jesus went ahead and suffered that penalty for us and he doesn't want any of us to have to go through that so if you realize this and if it sinks in the logical next question which I hope we're asking is what in the world do I do now what do I do now because there's a lot that we can do I want to offer two things and a bonus Here we go. Number one is own the situation. If you have never done this, I encourage you to do it today. Own the situation that you as an individual and all of humanity is in. The verdict is in. We're all rebels at heart. None of us is worthy to stand before God. And if we went face-to-face with Him, all of our best arguments about how great we are would evaporate. And we would agree with Him about how much we deserve punishment. I don't think anybody is going to argue with God on the day of judgment. No. Jesus. I feel like we might make excuses. Out of desperation. But in our hearts of hearts. Nobody is going to receive their final sentence. And think man he got it a little wrong. We're all going to agree. Mm-hmm. Own it. I had a professor one time that says. If you've never stood, stared at yourself in the mirror. And said there's a guy that deserves to go to hell. I don't know that you're saved. And I thought harsh man. And yet this is clearly what the Bible teaches. That's hard. We don't want to look at that. I encourage us all today to own that. Second, believe the solution. When Moses lifted up the pole, the people were healed, but there were still snakes. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, an awful lot was done that they couldn't begin to understand at the time, and the Romans remained. How many of them missed it because of that? Do not quit the Christian life. Do not quit on God. Do not think that he doesn't have it handled because there are still snakes and Romans in your life. He has done something different. He's done something other, but he's done something better. I had an experience last night. I called you, Sean. You're my witness. And I had to deal with something that I hadn't dealt with in years. And I was like, this is absolutely miserable. I cannot believe that this is still a part of my life. Like, seriously? This is happening again? And... As I'm reviewing my sermon, I'm like, that's that's the equivalent of a snake or a Roman still running around in my life. But it was amazing, and you helped me see It's like, dude, this is not the same. Like, God has done amazing things. Like, this is way different. It's still here. You're not the same dude. You know, there's a a different authority. There's a different ability to handle it. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, you're right. That sounds much better than the way I was thinking about it. (laughs) But believe the solution. Believe the cross. Trust Jesus to accomplish it. Somebody say amen. amen? Amen. Here's the third one. This is basically getting you saved, right? If you've never realized this, if you've never been saved, now is the time. Here's the third thing that I think we can all work on Jesus says the verdict is in because people love darkness rather than light. Love the light and not the darkness. Jesus came to die for people full of doubt, disbelief, Cynicism and anger, he is the light. The least we can do is learn to love him more. Amen. 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 Thank you guys. Here's Shamrock to close.